I am wondering this morning if some of you would be willing to be honest with me and honest with yourselves and honest with the people around you and tell me if, over the course of your life, you have ever made a purchase for the sake of your personal fitness (laughs) that you have rarely or never used. Can anybody raise your hand and think of something already? All righty. Anybody willing to admit that you've got a good life fitness bag still in its wrapping, plastic, somewhere in your home? Anybody? Good for you. Just honesty is good. Anybody ever bought a juicer? You're on the, yeah, on TV, they show, the, they show the thing with the juicer, and you take $900 worth of fruit. And you put it in the juicer, and it shoots out a $5 smoothie. It's unbelievable. It's just this big contraption you spend $600 on, and it's just a wastebasket is all that is. We've got one of those collecting dust in our house. Anybody ever got really excited uh, late night? You're eating a TV dinner or whatever it is, and they show you that picture of where they freeze-dry, like, fruit and vegetables and stuff, and they put them in the zip, the, the, the plastic things. You ever seen that before? I've got excited about those before. I'm going to order one of those. And I think to myself, I don't eat fruits and vegetables. What am I doing here? Like, and what, what, am I, what am I loading up for the apocalypse? Like, what is, what is happening? Like, I have no idea what this is. Okay, so how many of you still maybe have an ab roller in your house? Anybody? You remember those things? Do you remember ab rollers? Some of you are too young to remember this. This little contraption sits on the floor, and you get down, there's a little bar, and it helps you do sit-ups, and you do four, five, and then you look like a cologne model. I mean, you're just jacked, just absolutely ripped abs. You only have to do five. It's great. So if you have one of those, put it to good use. Okay, anybody, anybody willing to remember this one? You remember the thigh master. Do you remember the thigh master? How many of you, raise your hand, seriously, you got to raise your hand on this. You don't remember what the thigh master is. Anybody doesn't know what the thigh master is? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, cool. So here's the deal. This woman named Suzanne Summers, I think was an actress back in the day, she promoted this thing on TV, and it's this little contraption that she puts, like you put in between your legs, and you lay on your side, and you squeeze it, and that's all you do. And it's six minutes a day, and after six weeks, You look like an Olympic figure skater. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, you and I would agree that, man, if you have a fitness contraption in your house and you don't use it, is it worthless? It's worthless. If you have a gym membership and you don't go, what good is it? No good at all. You got a juicer. You got a protein shake maker. You got an ab roller. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin was telling me this. He recently bought, uh, you know those rowers that you use at the gym, those rowers? He went and, and bought it uh, at, at this location. It's an apartment, very small apartment. And Kevin asked them, like, in this very, very small apartment, where do you actually use this thing? Because you have to fold it down from the wall and use it. Where do you actually use this thing? And they said, ah, oh, it just stays up there against the wall. Just, we hang coats on it, right? Like we do our dry, you know, we just, we, the shirt comes out of the dryer wet, we just hang it up there and it dries and it's perfect. It's a great drying contraption, right? That's, that's all they use. So it's useless, it's useless. And so it's funny to me because we would apply this principle in every other area of life. The minute we apply it to spiritual things, more accurately maybe, the minute that James applies it to spiritual things and he says that faith without works doesn't work. 
Faith without works is useless. Faith that doesn't move us to do anything is dead, James would say. We go, oh, no, no, I don't think about it. Spiritually, spiritually speaking, that's not the same. Yes, it is. It's the same in every other area of life. If you're jotting down notes today, this is the one thing I want you to jot down. We're going to unpack it over the course of the morning. But faith without works just doesn't work. It doesn't work on the judgment day. It doesn't work when it comes to making you more like Jesus. It doesn't work when it comes to moving the kingdom of God forward in the world. If you say you have faith and it's not doing anything, it's not moving you to action, it just doesn't work. Faith without works doesn't work. So here's the question James asked, James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? It's one of them, their rhetorical questions. James is about to answer it for us, and he, and he wants to tell us about these two terms he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about faith and works. Faith and works. We're going to have to define those terms here in a minute. It's really critical that we do, but he's going to talk about faith and works and the correlation and how they interact with one another. More importantly, he says, what good is it, my brothers? What good? That's his question. What good is it if you have a rower that you never actually put down and use? What good is it if you have a gym membership, you never scan in and press some things and move some things and get sweating? What good is it that you have a juicer? What good is it? If you don't do anything about it. In other words, here's James' critical question that he introduces in James chapter 2, verse 14. Does workless faith work? Does workless faith work? And that's our question this morning. What James is going to do is answer the question. He's going to say faith without works doesn't work. Faith without works doesn't work. So let's define those two terms. I think it's really critical. When James says this word works, immediately we might think of good works, immediately we might think of going to church on a regular basis, going to Bible study and doing those things. Can I just spin that a little bit differently? Because the Bible talks about far more than just joining with the body in corporate worship or reading the Bible or whatever else. The Bible, talk, the Bible talks about far more than that. And the way that we've kind of defined works here at Bayview Glen is we say we demonstrate the gospel in all of life. And the gospel is simply this. It's the good news that Jesus came to die for your sins so that you spend eternity with God in heaven. <laughs> that's not the gospel if you pay attention at all. And that's part of the gospel, but, but that's not all of the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom. And he inaugurated it in his death, resurrection, or death, ascension, and resurrection. And that kingdom will be complete one day. And it's a kingdom of goodness, a kingdom of integrity, a kingdom of honesty, a kingdom of generosity, a kingdom of community and unity, a kingdom where all things work together for the good of those who love him, called according to his purpose, a kingdom of harmony. And so when we understand that that's God's intention in the world, and then we begin to live that out and begin to be good to others. Begin to connect with others. Begin to be hospitable toward others. Begin to look out for others. Begin to find our own balance in our own eternal life. Then we are demonstrating the gospel. We are living it out in all of life. In your work, in your play, in your marriage, in whatever. For some of you, it's dating. It's not me. For some of you, it's school. It's not me. But whatever that area, in all of life, we're demonstrating the gospel. So that's what James means when he says works. And what he means when he says this word faith, and you might already know this, is that faith is an act of trust in God. Now, James is going to be kind of facetious with this term. He's going to be sarcastic with this term. But for the rest of Scripture, anytime somebody talks about faith, it's an active trust in God. The original Greek word here is pistuyo, 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 faith. It's faith, right? So it's faith, and it's an active trust in God. So let me draw a distinction here, okay? Because faith is an active trust in God. 
right? So this, this is the difference. James is going to begin to talk about belief and faith and how those two things are different. Because watch what he says right up here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? So this is not someone who actually has an active trust or is placing their active trust. This is someone who says, I have faith. What good is it? And James is going to say, look, let me explain to you that that word faith, you say you have faith and you're not doing anything with it. That's not the biblical definition of that word. We're going to quote the Princess Bride a couple of times this morning, okay? So the first Princess Bride quote would be this. James would say to you, if you say you have faith and you're not doing anything with it, why do you keep using that word? I do not think it means what you think it means, right? So why do you keep using that word faith? I do not think it means what you think it means. So belief says this. I believe that if I sit down on the edge of that stage, the stage will hold me. That's what belief says. Faith does this. And the full weight of my body is now held by the edge of the stage. It's the same thing when we say, I believe that God is there, or I believe that he's good, or I believe that he's sovereign, or I believe whatever, until we place the full weight of our life into the hands of God, then we don't have faith. All we have is belief. And what James is going to say to us here is that faith always moves us, but belief only soothes us. Faith always moves you towards action. It always moves you towards works. It always moves you to demonstrating the gospel in all of life. What belief does is it soothes your conscience and it says, because I believe that God exists, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Because I believe that God exists, I'm cool, I'm good, I'm in right relationship with him, and it's going to soothe you, soothe you, appease you, assuage you, ease your conscience, and make you think that you're in right relationship with God. All the while, you're not because you have a workless faith, a faith that's not moving. I have a gym membership, so I'm good. Nope. <laughs> In no other area of life would we say that. And then watch the question that James says. He says, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? Now, immediately, I think when we see this word save, we almost immediately talk about the judgment day. In, order, in other words, uh, will, will workless faith work on the judgment day? When I come before God and he separates separate sheep from goats, wheat from tares, heaven and hell, is that faith going to work? And we think about people like this, right? Look up here on the screen, that the judgment day is going to happen on May 21st, 2011. And some people are going to go to heaven, some people are going to go to hell. That's the big judgment day that you see on movies, and it's going to happen on that day. Um, I'm almost certain it didn't happen on this day, just so you guys know. Um, I'm 100% certain that's a joke, right? People call like Judgment Day, Judgment Day's coming. Uh, does anybody recognize where this is, by the way? Can anybody look at these buildings back here and recognize where exactly this is happening? That's the Eaton Center. That's right outside the Eaton Center. People talking about Judgment Day all the time and talking about as if when God talks about that word save or salvation that he's talking exclusively about the Judgment Day. He's, yes, in part talking about the Judgment Day, but he's talking about much more than that. See, this word save in the original language is, is, um, is sozo, and it's, uh, it's in the aorist tense, the Greek aorist tense. We don't even have that tense of verbs in the English language, but it includes past, present, and future. The judgment day is just in the future, but it also includes your present condition. It also includes your past sins. It includes all of who you are. He says, can that type of faith that doesn't actively place its trust in God for all things, is that going to do anything for you, past, present, and future? 
And we know that James' conclusion is faith without works doesn't work, but here's how he's going to argue it. The first thing he's going to do is set up a hypothetical situation, and here's the hypothetical situation. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here we go. First thing James says, somebody comes into the assembly and they are poor. They are lacking in like the minimal things that they need to get by. They don't have clues. Clues? <laughs> they don't have clothes. They don't have shelter. They don't have food. And instead of helping them, you say to them, go in peace, which is the, like the modern equivalent of this word, of both in the Greek and it's kind of a throwback to Hebrew, by the way. James is using kind of a throwback to his Hebrew roots or his Jewish roots. Go in peace is kind of like, good luck to you. You ever, you ever have somebody say that to you? Good luck. You know what that means is try not to die, right? I'm not going to be there helping you. It's like the person saying, I got your back way back, right? Like, I'm not there with you. I'm not in it with you. I'm not going to help, but, you know, best of luck to you. If you say that and you don't give them the things that you need for the body, what good is that? You've got a gym membership, you don't go. What good is it? You've got an ab roller, you don't use it. What good is it? What good is it? And then he says, watch, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, what is James saying? He's saying faith without works doesn't work. That's his argument. Faith without works doesn't work. Again, <laughs> We get itchy and jittery and we get uncomfortable in our seats because we know, if you've been around church at all, that Paul has said that we're justified by what alone? Faith alone, right? Grace alone. Faith alone, grace alone. We know the reformers said justified by faith alone and grace alone. James is not arguing contra Paul here. He's saying the very same thing that Paul here. Paul is saying, and remember, that when Paul talks about active or faith, he's talking about an active trust in God. And when James talks about faith, he's using it facetiously. He says, you say you have faith, but why do you keep using that word? I don't think it means what you think it means. It's not a mental ascent. And in every other area of life, if we have something and we don't use it, it's worthless to us. My wife used to work in banking in kind of a former life when we first got married. And she used to come home on a regular basis and tell me these radical stories about how foolish people were. She, 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 called, she, she came home one day and told me this story about a man who had called and his account was overdrawn. He said, man, why do I have an account that's overdrawn? And he said, well, okay, on this date you had this much money and then you spent this and spent this and spent this. Are those all your charges? Yes, ma'am, those are all my charges. None of them are fraudulent? No, none of them are fraudulent. Those are all my charges. Okay, well, you spent more than was in your account, so now your account is overdrawn. Literally, this is what he said. Why is my account overdrawn? I still have checks. If that's you, talk to my wife. They can, she can help you with your banking, all right? The same way, like if, if it's something like that, it's like you have a checking account, you don't put money into it, what good is it? No good at all. You have a refrigerator, you don't put food in it, what good is it? No good at all. I want to show you this. This is actually a, a picture of one of our elders who just got married. This is a picture of his refrigerator the day he got engaged. This is the day he got engaged. Who knows if there are actually eggs in here? I don't know, right? I don't know. Then he's got some kind of block of cheese that's not been opened. Tupperware's probably from his mother. 
and a jar of pickles. <laughs> a jar of pickles. I just snorted because it's so hilarious to me. It's like, are you saving that for the apocalypse? Like, what is happening? With Why do you have a jar of pickles in your refrigerator? This is the day he got engaged, okay? A week after he got married. Here's his fridge. Yeah. Yeah, you got a yogurt, some water, look, the soda's nice, it comes out here. Ooh, carrots, right? The eggs are gone, the pickles are gone. Look, the same way you don't have, or if you have a fridge, you don't put anything in it, it's worthless. You have a gym membership, you don't go, it's worthless, it's dead. The same way faith without works is dead. Let's keep going, next slide, please. But someone will say, This is an imaginary interlocutor. This is an imaginary person that's talking to James, and he kind of sets this person up. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, imagine what this person is doing. They're making a distinction and drawing a very hard line between faith and works and saying that those two things are are mutually exclusive. There's faith over here and there's works over here. And sometimes you can have them both, but they don't always exist together. And James is about to to tell us, no, they always exist together. They're like Abbott and Costello. They're like Sears and Roebuck. They're like Beyonce and Jay-Z. They're like Justin and Haley. They always exist together. Ready? He says, you say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. If you have actively placed your trust in Christ and allowed your body, your mind, your emotions, your life, your spirituality to rest entirely in the act of the resurrection of Christ and his substitutionary death for you, it will, it will change you. And if you haven't been changed, James says, then you maybe ought to track back and go, did I actually place my full faith in Christ? So what he's saying is works don't justify, works demonstrate justification. Let me define those words. Those things that you do to move the kingdom forward in your life, the demonstration of the gospel, they do not set you right before God. Only grace alone, only faith alone. That is not, you do not get set right before God because of what you do or what you fail to do. That's not, that's not, that's not how you get set right before God. You get set right before God by faith alone, grace alone. But works do demonstrate justification. And it demonstrates when you, your life changes and your behavior changes and the way you interact with it, 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 when that changes, you can say to yourself, oh, yes, I have placed my active trust in God because now my life is different. And James is going to go so far to say, watch what James says. This is fascinating because this is a very aggressive statement that he makes. Listen to this. He says, you say that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe that and they shudder. Ow, James. Relax, pal. And he's like, look, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. All I'm saying is you say you have this belief and it doesn't cause you to change. Even those who are diametrically opposed to God still have that belief. And not only they have that belief, but when they say God is one, they shudder in fear. <sighs> so so it, it, this faith without works thing, that doesn't work. Because we just saw someone who has faith without works, right? And clearly it doesn't work. That's a demon, right? Just a side note here, and I think this is really important, not just for those outside the church, but even those inside the church, because in our culture, we have got to the point where we have said to ourselves, if I just kind of affirm the existence of God, I'm good, right? 
I believe that God is there. I believe that there is a God. I try to live my life in accordance with what I think God's principles might be, but it hasn't necessarily affected a change in my life. Can I just tell you that God is not asking you to affirm his existence? <laughs> you just, like if we just think of the nature of God and how big and great God is, that he needs us to go, I believe you're there. And that's all he's asking. Imagine this again. Any other area of life, Amy asked me, I need you to do the dishes. The sink is full of dirty dishes. I need you to do the dishes. And my response to my sweet wife is, wife, which is what I call her. It's not true. I believe there are dishes that need to be done. In my heart, I believe it. Sometimes I sing songs about how much I believe there are dishes that need to be done. I've listened to extended monologues on Sunday morning about the dishes that need to be done. I affirm there are dishes that need to be done. You know what my wife would say to me? She would say, you should run and not walk away from me right now. <laughs> right? In no other area of life. God's not asking us to affirm his existence. What he's asking us to do is place our active trust in him. And that will necessarily affect change. James is about to use two examples from the Old Testament. The reason that he does this is because many of the people in his audience that he's writing to are converted Jews or Messianic Jews. They're Jews that have been waiting on the Messiah, and now they've affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. But they have those Jewish roots, those Jewish history. And so he uses two examples from the Old Testament. And he says, check this out. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, now he's name-calling, wow, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Whoa, 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 whoa. Justified by works or justified by faith? Because we just said that Paul said, the rest of the scripture says, justified by faith. What are we talking about here, justified by works? Stick with me. If you don't know the story of Abraham, here's the story. God called Abraham out of a pagan nation and said, I'm going to bless you with as many children and descendants as there are sand on the seashore, as there are stars in the sky. And the reason I'm going to do that is so that nation, that family, can bless the ends of the earth. That's what I'm going to do. And Abraham waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and no child and no child and no child and no child. And finally, when he's in his 90s, his wife, who is also in her 90s, they get pregnant, naturally. And what do you do when you get pregnant in your 90s? You name your kid Laughter, which is what they named their kid, because this is ridiculously funny, right? Could you imagine a 93-year-old like, um, I'm pregnant, oh, Whoa, let's name your kid Hilarity because that is funny stuff. So that's what Abraham and Sarah do. And when Isaac is coming of age, this son of promise that was supposed to be all his descendants and all the promises and all the sand on the seashore and all the blessings, all that stuff, God says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac up to the top of this hill and sacrifice him. And Abraham goes, uh, a baking powder? What? And God said, I want you to trust me. And so Abraham trusts him. And he does it, and he takes Isaac up to the top of this mountain, and instead of sacrificing Isaac, God stops 
Abraham and says, no, 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 I've provided a ram. Now you and your son together can sacrifice this ram. And so when James says to us that Abraham is justified by his works, what he's saying to us is that Abraham places his active trust in God. Rather than saying to God, I believe that you said that to me, now I'm going to act. You see the difference? I just heard you say that. I believe there are dishes that need to be done. I believe you said, go make the sacrifice. I believe that. That is a very different notion than saying, now I'm going to act on it. And so James is saying to us that works are inextricably bound with faith. Keep going. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works. There we are in that active trust. Faith was completed by his works. I want to stop there and just do a real quick side note, right? Faith was completed. You see that word completed? That word in the original language is pleorma. It's a Greek word for filled all the way up. So check this out. This is, this, is, this, is, this is a nugget of truth that James gives us, and it's totally free this morning. It's a little bit unrelated to our message. Check it out, nugget of truth. Are you struggling with your faith? Are you struggling to know that God is there? Are you struggling to, to have a relationship with him? Are you struggling in your prayer life? Are you having questions about the Bible and who God is and all that stuff? Are you struggling in your faith? Please, please don't sit in your room and try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go, believe more, believe more, believe more. Please don't like, read a bunch of books about the Bible and study the Bible more. Those are good things. Those are good things. Those are okay things. But what does James say? When you're struggling with faith, you want your faith to be filled up and not lacking? Do stuff. Aha. For the kingdom. Extend hospitality. Serve somebody else. Love somebody else unconditionally. I will bet anybody in this room my next paycheck that those five or six youth that were up here on platform, if they were struggling in their faith now, when they get back a week from now, their faith will be filled up. Don't you think? Anybody want to take that wager? It's my next paycheck, so it's not that much anyway, but whatever, right? Like... That's what happens when we serve people. That's what happens when we engage. That's what happens when we love people is our faith gets filled up. All right, we're going to keep going. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? He believed God. He places active trust in God. So he was justified, counted to him as righteousness by faith. And he was called a friend of God. You see that, that faith was active and you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Once again, this is not contra Paul. This is not saying that you need to do stuff in order to be set right before God. What James is saying is that if you are set right before God by faith, you will inevitably do stuff. And if you're not doing stuff, then let's rewind to whether or not you're set right before God. Now he uses a second illustration from the Old Testament. And if you know the Old Testament at all, he's got a lot to pick from. A lot of people he could use. And he uses a fascinating one. Check it out. He says, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified? <laughs> this is so good. Watch what James does. Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. 
If you don't know the story of Rahab, here's the story. God gives over the land, land of Canaan to the nation of Israel, and they begin to send spies in to check out what's happening and who's what, where, and all that stuff, just to, get a, just to get a sense and a feel of this land that they've been promised. And there's a couple of spies that are in this land, and they're about to get caught, and they need someone to save them. And this woman, Rahab, who is a prostitute, welcomes them into her home, shows hospitality, hides them so they can escape the armies that are trying to conquer them, and eventually says, the God that you serve, he's the real God, he's the true God. And it was her faith, her active trust in God, that compelled her to do something, namely to save the people of God by showing hospitality. See, she was justified, right where we are, justified by works when she received the messengers. Yes, set right before God by faith, but that faith inevitably, without question, caused her to do something about it. The, the reason I laugh is I think this is very funny, is that James is writing to uh, many of those who he's writing to are Jews, right? And he chooses one, the patriarch, the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. Not even down the line, but the very first one, the big dog, right? And then he chooses a hooker. <laughs> think about it. So I don't care who you are, where you come from, what your spiritual background is, whether God called you out of a pagan land as he did Abraham or whether God sent his messengers into a pagan land so that you might know him better as he did Rahab. I don't care if you're a religious hero. I don't care if you're a prostitute. Everybody is set right before God in the same exact way by faith alone. And that faith inevitably causes us, moves us, compels us to do something. Look what John Calvin writes about this passage. He says, as Paul contends, we are justified apart from the help of works. So James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned righteous. He just says, hey, you're justified by faith alone, but, but, check it out, James is also telling you, if you don't see change in your life, you maybe ought to ask the question if you were ever set right before God in the first place. I think James means two things. I think God means two things in this passage, two things for us to take away. I think the first is a warning, and I can't get away from it, right? You just read the passage with me. You just tracked with me through the whole thing. It's a warning. It's a warning. And specifically, it's a warning for church people. And I'm not saying Christians. I'm saying church people. Here's why I know that. 2,000 years ago, when James is writing this letter to the church, this broad letter to any people in the church that would read it, there was no such thing back then as a nominal Christian. Someone who's just a Christian in name but doesn't like actually attend church. Like Christians gathered together. That's what they did. And there wasn't, weren't many, in fact, maybe none at all back then, who would say that they were Christian but didn't actually engage in the community of faith. That person just didn't exist. It was way too dangerous to say that. There was no social benefit for saying that, whatever. So he's writing to church people. And so what I want to do here for a moment is extend maybe a warning, just as James did, to church people. Church people. And, and, and for a moment, for two to three minutes here, I'm going to use a lot of church language. Okay? Now, if you are not a church person and you don't like understand church language, it's not a nomenclature that you are familiar with, you may check your email okay? or, or post on Insta or whatever it is you want to do. If you're a church person, I need you to pay attention to me. 
you may think that you're justified before God and set right before him and that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you because one day you prayed a prayer. But if you are not being sanctified more and more every day and becoming more and more like him, the warning is you better ask yourself the question, were you ever justified in the first place? That's the warning. There's no way around that. There's no way to sugarcoat that. There's no way to sweet talk that. I was listening to, reading actually a, a sermon that, a, that a, a very popular pastor, a church of ten or 12,000 gave, and he shared this uh, on, on James chapter 2, and he shared this story of an individual in his church that was the head of the board of a church, like the head of a deacon board or the head of an elder board or something like that, and he heard this passage and stood up and walked down the aisle and repented and placed his active trust in Jesus for the first time. And he would say, he would say I was saved that day. It's like, well, you were the head of an elders board and you were saved that day? Oh, yes, I was. You know why? Because my faith wasn't changing me. I hadn't placed my active trust in God. I was going to church. I was going to CBS. I was going to BSF. I had a little uh, thing in my house that says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. I had a little, little fish on my car. Right? Like I, I had, like I had the thing, the thing the Christ, all the Christian stuff, and yet I wasn't making disciples. Look back over 30 years of my life and no one's converted because of my verbal witness about Jesus. No one's drawn closer to God or become more aware of his goodness and his plan for them because of my demonstration of the gospel in all of my life. I, I know a lot of the books of the Bible and I've studied a lot of them and I can maybe parse out the Greek or whatever, but, but, but I've, there's no change in me. Essentially, here's the warning, is that because you've misdefined the word healthy, you're not aware that you're sick. You think because you're here on a regular basis, and maybe even you're in the 930 service too, you know, you, you listen to the podcast, and I've got, you know, I can even name them. I got David Jeremiah, and I got Matt Chandler, and I got Ravi Zacharias, and I read the apologetics books, and I know the books of the Bible. James does not care what you know. He cares about what you're doing. And if you are convincing yourself that you are a healthy, vibrant, living, active Christian with a healthy, vibrant, living, active faith, just because you know stuff, that means you don't have a healthy, vibrant, living, active faith, and it means you are still sick in the eyes of God, in desperate need of his grace, and in desperate need of right relationship with him. And guess what? It comes to you the same way it comes to Abraham, the same way it comes to Rahab, just by placing your active trust in God and placing your life into his hands. Martin Luther wrote this, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It's impossible for it to be doing, or for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It, the faith, does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. I was thinking about this on the way in this morning. Um, it is not my job to convict you. And the reality is the longer that you live thinking that you're healthy and all the while you're sick, the more difficult it is for somebody to break through that hardness of heart. And the more unlikely it is that the Spirit of God would break through that hardness of heart and melt your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It becomes increasingly unlikely the longer that you do it. But check it out and listen very, very closely. He very much can. 
Don't you fool yourself. Don't you tell yourself that story that he can't. He absolutely can. And I would invite you to break out of that shame and break out of whatever it is it is holding you back and saying, I maybe have not placed my active trust in Jesus. Ever. And I may have been here every Sunday. I may have served on the elder board of this church. But today could be your day to be set right before God. Second thing I think James means here is he means it to be an encouragement. I think he really does. I think he means it to be an encouragement for somebody who's a brand new Christian. You've been a Christian seven days, 14 days, 30 days. Maybe you've been a Christian 10, 20, 30 years, and you're looking back over the course of your life, and you're going, oh, my gosh, I still sin. I still have issues. I still it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, nine steps back, and I'm always, it, you know, it's always a struggle for me, and it's always a difficulty for me, and I'm not perfect, and I want to be and I fail so regularly and all that stuff. So I would say the same thing to you that a buddy of mine said to me just a couple weeks ago. He made this brilliant statement. A buddy of mine's in town. His name is Jim. And Jim has Parkinson's disease. I've been uh, through a lot of stuff with Jim over the last 10 years. He's become a very, very good friend of mine. Very strong believer. He's an elder in my former church. Loves Jesus. Loves his wife and kids. He's an outstanding man. and 61 years old and his body is beginning to deteriorate. So uh, he came out to the house, and we were painting because we just moved into this new house and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, I mean, that's like when you're desperate for help, you know. That's what Jim said this to me. He's like, you got to be desperate for help because you're asking a guy with Parkinson's to paint the edges, you know. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to mock people with Parkinson's. That's a, that's a horrible thing, and I'm very, very sorry as my heart goes out to Jim. But that was his joke, not mine. So if you want his email, come see me. I'll give it to you. Um, so we began to uh, get hungry in the late afternoon, and Jim said, let's walk to lunch. And I said, okay, because we have some walking joints, uh, walk, or some, some places to eat within walking distance of us. And Jim now, um, because of his Parkinson's disease, he can walk about this pace if he's concentrating. If he's really, really focusing, he can walk about this pace. If not, he kind of shuffles his feet like this. And he would tell you, he says, I have two speeds. One of them is stationary. <laughs> the other is this. And he just walks like this. And so because Jim and I have been friends for a long time, I would never, if, you, if this is you, if you have a physical ailment or whatever, I never, ever, ever, you know, kind of poke fun or whatever. But Jim and I are very, very good friends, and I know that I'm in a safe space with him. And I'm like, hey, pick it up, partner. You know, let's, let's pick up the pace. I'm getting hungry. He looks at me, and he goes, hey, it's not the pace the direction. And then he begins to tie that moment to spirituality. And I would say the same thing to you. You may be thinking that you're not getting there fast enough. I would tell you it's not the pace, it's the direction. Are you a little more loving today than you were yesterday, okay? Does, does sin grieve your heart a little more today than it did a week ago, a year ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Even if you look back over the course of 50 years and you go, I have not gotten this much more loving in 50 years, but I've gotten this much. Good. It's not the pace. It's the direction. Where are you headed? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus every minute of every day? Then James would come along and go, good. Then you have faith, active trust, not just belief. Are you moving in the direction of God? Are you growing in intimacy with him? Don't look at, don't look at making it happen right away. It's not the pace. It's the direction. And I would encourage you today to be confident 
and that act of trust and be confident that you are his because you know that God is transforming you each and every day. Let's end where James started. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Let's pray. God, my first prayer would be that those in the room that need to heed that warning would heed that warning. Maybe it's just one, two, three, maybe it's 50. God, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of trust in you if we were to admit that to ourselves and heed that warning today. So I pray for those in the room that, would, that they would heed that warning, that you would break through, that you would call them out of where they are into an active, vibrant, living relationship with you that moves them towards others, that moves them into hospitality, that moves them into biblical community, that moves them to share a verbal witness about Jesus with their neighbor, that moves them to really do the work of the kingdom, not attend Bible studies and show up at church. All those are good things, but really to allow your good news about Jesus to permeate all of who we are. I pray that they would heed that warning. And for those that needed to hear an encouragement, Pray that that encouragement would sit heavy in their heart and soul today. That they would walk out of this place with confidence and joy and peace. Knowing that you who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. It doesn't have to happen any quicker. It's not the pace. It's just the direction and we trust you with that. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen.